From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary stranger, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Scott Greer, a columnist with The Daily Caller and uh, the author of No Campus for White Men, joins us this hour to shine a bright light on the growing obsession with diversity, victimization, and identity politics on today's college campuses and uh, how it's creating an intensely hostile and fearful atmosphere that can only lead ultimately to even greater polarization in North American society. He'll be with us shortly. Uh, What's in the box? Your chance to participate in our remote viewing experiment also coming up using the hashtag TCSRemote. If you'd like to participate, TCS Remote, and we'll do the reveal at the bottom of the hour. First, let's introduce the boys in the band. On the Flying V, Gibson Guitar, technical producer Ian Robertson. And on this side of the glass, on the Rickenbacker bass guitar, and occasionally the theremin, story producer Albert Vinzel. And on the Hammond B3, intern Ryan White. Gentlemen, welcome. Uh, please take a moment to uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We've set a, a modest goal of 10,000 subs sometime this year. And you can stream the show there live uh, or watch previous episodes, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Please hit that little red subscribe button. Uh, gentlemen, assembled, please, and all of you listening at home, Please focus your attention to the lovely humidor, the cigar box, on my left, on the desk here at 70 Jefferson Avenue in the Liberty Village of Toronto. Focus. Utilize your remote viewing skills, and uh, we will do the reveal at the bottom of the hour. Again, if you'd like to... Remote view and participate at home. Use the hashtag TCS, as in The Conspiracy Show. TCS Remote. And uh, for the individual who comes closest to identifying the contents of this box, we will set you up with some fine Conspiracy Show merchandise. And you can check out the online store at theconspiracyshow.com. Theconspiracyshow.com. All right. Across the country. Ugly campus protests across the United States, ostensibly. Ugly campus protests over speakers with dissenting viewpoints, as well as a preoccupation with microaggressions, trigger warnings, safe spaces, and brand new gender identities make it obvious that something has gone terribly wrong with higher education. For years, colleges have pursued policies favoring students based not on their merit, but on their race, gender, and sexual orientation. The disturbingly negative effects of this culture are now impossible to deny. Scott Greer's investigative work links such seemingly unrelated trends as rape culture, hysteria, and Black Lives Matter to an overall campus mindset intent on elevating and celebrating leftist-designated protected classes above everyone else while intimidating, censoring, and punishing those who disagree with this perversely un-American agenda. 
in No Campus for White Men. Greer broadens the usual media focus well beyond coverage of demonstrations by easily offended college students to spotlight the darker forces at work behind the scenes that are feeding higher education metastasizing crisis and how all this results in sustained animosity, first and foremost, toward white men. Greer also documents how this starkly totalitarian culture is not isolated to higher education, but is rather a result of trends already operating in society. Thus, he shows today's campus madness may eventually dominate much more of America if if it is not addressed and reversed soon. Scott Greer, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on tonight. Thank you for hanging out with us. Uh, Your book begins with an incredibly innocuous uh, incident. Under normal circumstances, it would be innocuous, at Emory College in Atlanta back in March of 2016. Someone had written in chalk a Trump 2016 on the pavement. Imagine the horror. Well, no joke, this caused a number of students to complain that this represented racial intimidation and they demanded the college president condemn the chalking in the strongest terms possible. The president was pressured into issuing a statement sympathizing with the victims. The student council actually released emergency funds to provide counseling to those emotionally scarred by the chalk. But it didn't. Uh, it didn't end there, did it, Scott? This spread. Explain. No, it did not end just at Emory. Actually, at several other universities throughout the spring of 2016, there were uh, similar talkings uh, expressing support for Donald Trump and his presidential campaign, which he wasn't the Republican nominee at the time, but he was the Republican front runner. And these kept happening, and similar hysteria met any instance of talking at a university. Uh, there was one instance at, uh, at the University of Michigan where there was talking, um, listed and students demanded a, uh, 911 hotline in case they reported any further talkings in this manner. Uh, there was a student at the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga, who participated in a talking and the student government, she was a member of student government and student government was demanding she resign over a political speech, which in the United States of America is, you know, protected by the First Amendment, protected by the Constitution, and is a hallowed mark of our democracy and our way of life is that you ha- that your right to voice your political speech is protected. But apparently at universities, they think that's not the case if it offends somebody and it offends protected classes. So we saw uh, these, all these campuses that similar things were happening, that students uh, were just expressing, you know, their political point of view, which is normal for college students, normal in our society, normal in public discourse to do so, yet students were acting like it was, you know, Klansmen riding on a campus and putting down burning crosses because they, they, at the mere sight of Trump's name in Chalkmark, they thought that was very similar to actual legitimate racial violence, which it's of course not. But they were able to use that argument to kind of suppress and to attack for their students. There was uh, one incident where there was kind of some violence involved at um, Tulane University in New Orleans. There was a fraternity that set up a Trump wall uh, made out of sandbags, and they wrote, you know, Trump 2016 on it. And several African-American football players uh, went to the fraternity house and began demolishing it and rampaging all over the property. And when the fraternity members said, stop, 
they refused and even were physically intimidating the fraternity members to go inside while they, you know, destroyed private property. So there were some cases where it led to near violence over the mere side of just seeing political speech expressed in chalk marks. Uh, God forfend the students should actually pick up a history book and, and understand that the KKK, uh, and they sort of dust that chestnut off every time something offends them, that the resurrection of the KKK, God forfend they should understand that the KKK was the military wing of the Democratic Party. They need to own that and wear it. Yeah, they, it's not about history or even understanding current politics. And it's also, you know, you look at uh, fascist movements that were suppressing speech and uh, people's right to express their political viewpoints, and they're, you know, wailing about fascism, yet they're acting like fascists. So there's a lot of hypocrisy involved in these protests on campus and what they see as uh, unacceptable speech, while at the same time they're kind of, you know, veering towards totalitarianism and uh, and what they think is a permissible on a college campus. And I was just seeing this. I thought this was a good beginning to No Campus for Women because it really sets up how campus treats speech and what kind of speech is, is allowed. If it's a conservative expressing a viewpoint, that's not allowed. But if you're can if you identify with a minority group or a protected class, whatever you say in response to you know offending the so-called establishment, which is not really the establishment, or against white people or anything that perceived as kind of the battle of old America or battle of Western civilization, that's allowed. And we kind of saw that at the start with the chalking that was happening in spring of 2016. Scott Greer is with us. He's an editor columnist with The Daily Caller, and his uh, book is No Campus for White Men. For for those listening who may not be familiar with some of the terminology, uh, which I'm guessing is now finding its way into the student handbooks on college campuses, explain what microaggression means. A microaggression, um, you know, 15 years ago would have been a term that very few people know, but it's now gone into the mainstream, at least in American political discourse. A microaggression refers to a unintended, uh, verbal or otherwise private, um, slight or snub that is delivered by somebody who, um, is affiliated with the dominant majority of society and marginalizes a minority. So, if you are with friends and you say some remark, uh, you know, that Asians are good at math, that would be considered a microaggression. And that's a big problem to express that viewpoint. Even though if you're doing it in a private conversation, they still go after that. And there's a lot of cases where a student made a remark in private conversation and it later, later led to um, them facing punishment by the school. So it's about kind of these things that are not publicly expressed speech and are they're, of course, protected by the First Amendment, and they're delivered in private speech, and they're not necessarily intended to be racist or derogatory towards another group. But if they, if a minority member says that that offends them, that that would be a, uh, a microaggression. Now, a lot of them aren't even as, you know, as clear-cut as saying Asians are good at math. Some of them could be, you know, a, a cafeteria offering ethnic food. And them saying, well, you didn't offer this certain dish, and that's a microaggression. Or it goes even further ridiculous that having a whiteboard is a microaggression because you're saying that whiteness is the You can't make this stuff up. You can't make it up. And Or even – Scott, I read one one account where someone uh, someone faced disciplinary action because they actually asked someone – 
where are you from? Meaning, you know, what is your, your ethnic background? What country do you come from? It goes on and on. Scott Greer stays with us, editor, columnist with The Daily Caller, and his book is No Campus for White Men. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. What's in the box? Our big reveal coming up at the bottom of the hour, our weekly remote viewing experiment. Aaron G. Checking in with the hashtag TCS Remote. A book of matches. The box isn't a safe space tonight. We are talking about uh, safe spaces and microaggressions and trigger warnings with Scott Greer, an editor and columnist with The Daily Caller and author of No Campus for White Men. Uh, the uh, obsession with uh, diversity, uh, identity politics, and um, uh, really, uh, well, white privilege. We'll get get around to discussing that as well. Uh, I believe we just passed White Privilege Month where students were asked to wear sort of white uh, puzzle pieces on their uh, – I mean, anyone who, go, who can afford to go to a um, – a college or university in the United States, I would say, is privileged, uh, no matter the skin color. Um, so we were talking about uh, microaggressions, and um, uh, did we get to trigger warnings? What constitutes a trigger did, warning? I, what, I, what constitutes yeah. a trigger warning, Scott? A trigger warning is something that's put in place uh, in front of a speech or a writing that and it warns students that beware, there's offensive material ahead, and you might not want to read it because you know, your sensitive 21-year-old mind, even though you're, you know, adult, can't handle the material ahead. And this has become very common in newspapers. You know, they'll be reporting on crime reports, and it's like trigger warning. You know, you, you, you to some students might be too sensitive to read this, even though, you know, in a society, you're going to have to read something, you know, uncomfortable details and be aware of them. You can't just be, you know, cloistered in your own little reality your own little bubble, or so to speak, your own little safe space, uh, as you will if you're going to live in the real world. But in, on a college campus, a trigger warning is just another way for them to deny reality and kind of just be stuck in their own little place and not have to deal with ideas and concepts and hard facts that they otherwise don't want to hear. And this is kind of used in a ridiculous manner. I think uh, they were trying to use trigger warnings against um, ovid you know, the great uh, Roman writer, they were trying to use it. They said it, you know, the scenes he described in his works were just too violent and uh, and um, too offensive for modern-day readers. You know, even though this is a great work of uh, Western culture, we can't read Ovid. And they, so they kind of use this in a way that it gets more and more ridiculous. Well, is there now underway a um, an organized, concerted effort to expunge, let's say, for example, white philosophers or, um, you know, the, the, the English masters, uh, you know, the, the, the Spencers, the Miltons, the Duns, the Shakespeare's from the curriculum? Yes, there's actually several efforts. Uh, I document this uh, throughout No Campus for Women. Uh, and the, uh, at Yale University last summer, they were demanding that English courses drop you know, Shakespeare and Milton and all their great uh, writers of the English language, there was a class requirement uh, for all English students that they had to create, like, uh, they had to take this certain class, which taught all the greats of English, of the English language. Well, they didn't like it because it was too white and too male. 
Thus, they wanted more minority writers and more LGBT writers and more people with alternative identities in that course um, because that didn't represent the students. So instead of focusing on the merit and the quality and the influence of the writer, they simply just cared about their skin color. And that was a standard that these students who were protesting against this course wanted imposed. So they wanted to get rid of Milton and Shakespeare and replace them with, you know, just some writer who's put in that course just because of their skin color. And so, yeah, there's definitely an effort underway where I, where they want to eliminate these kind of old greats of the English language and just of all Western languages because they're just too white to handle and they want, they just want to base the quality of a person's writings or their works based on their skin color or their alternative identity that, that puts them at a difference from, you know, the old, uh, dead white male patriarchy that they hate so much. Radicalism on, on college campuses is not new. Uh, most of us remember or at least have read about uh, the protests on campuses throughout the 1960s and 70s. But as you point out in No Campus for White Men, the difference back then was students were protesting for more freedom of, of speech. And today's protests mm-hmm. on college campuses, students and many of their cultural Marxist professors are actually demanding less freedom of speech. Uh, obviously, college is supposed to be about being exposed to a diversity of ideas, even painful or uncomfortable ideas. So, uh, what what are they what are they talking about? What's you know what kind of education are they getting? What are they learning? Yeah, and uh, going on that free speech, the uh, difference between the 60s and today was highlighted in this uh, picture that went viral on the Internet over the weekend. There was a protest at Berkeley, and somebody burnt a free speech sign, a, a sign that literally had free speech, and somebody was uh, <laughs> left sorry, that protester was burning it. And they compared it with a protest at Berkeley in the 1960s where the sign out in front is free speech. So it really just illustrated what's happened. Well, what they're learning is that uh, certain ideas shouldn't even be heard or tolerated. It's kind of the same underlying motivation that for why they want trigger warnings and they want to criminalize microaggressions and they want safe spaces is that they feel that they can restrict what ideas are put out there because if they hear these ideas, they're not just bad because of they're going to list the facts and reasons for that. They're going to say they're bad because they threaten students. That if these ideas are expressed, Minority students and those who come from protected classes are at risk of, you know, some type of violence or they're going to be marginalized just by certain ideas expressed. So the reason why they oppose free speech is free speech forces them to hear ideas that they don't want to hear. So that's why they're opposing it. And they think this is a good thing because they think if, if you give a platform to a conservative speaker, to somebody like Charles Murray, which last week, he went to uh, speak at Middlebury College in Vermont, and a riot. Well, pro- he got shouted down. He had to force his cancel delivering a speech before a student audience. He had to deliver by video. And when he was leaving, he he and another professor were assaulted, and the professor actually had neck injuries because they pulled her hair. And then they began attacking his car. So the, all this violence was given to this person just because they thought his views shouldn't even be allowed to be aired on a college campus. So they think they're doing the morally right thing by wanting to suppress speech because if somehow if you utter these words, your life is in danger. And that's the kind of mentality they have. It's very crazy what they have, but they think that they're actually doing right by suppressing speech. Is it fair to say, at least my 
my feeling is that they are being encouraged uh, in this behavior by the mainstream media. And even the former attorney general recently said, Ms. Lynch, on record, is saying uh, that uh, there needs to be more blood in the streets. Can you imagine? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there is encouragement. I think one of the, you know, one of the instances that inspired uh, me to write this was in November 2015. There were large protests at the University of Missouri and at, um, to unseat the university president there. And over 30 African-American football players actually joined a boycott to unseat him. And the whole reason they were wanting to unseat him is because of systemic racism that was going on, which is uh, apparently <laughs> they, there was kind of imaginary racism. There wasn't any real racist incidents on the campus, but all these activists were claiming that. Well, the media was celebrating these people as heroes even though they're protesting over something ridiculous and they're forcing this president out under the most dubious circumstances possible. And all their demands were about creating special benefits only for minority students. It would not be available for the whole student body. They would get free counseling and all these great benefits that would be reserved exclusively for minority students and not for the whole student body. But the media valorized them, and that led to further protests throughout uh, fall of 2015 at other campuses because they saw the media was celebrating these protesters who uh, were protesting over imaginary racism that didn't exist and forced a good man out of his job, they saw them be the mainstream media celebrating them as heroes. And we're seeing that now with more extremism on campus because the media is claiming that, you know, our president, the American president, is a fascist Nazi who's going to kill everybody. So they, the media, these kids hear this from the media, and they're like, well, I want to resist this fascist dictator. I don't want to go down with a fight. So then they become more violent, more extreme, and all their actions are justified because they're not just uh, resisting against political opponents. They're resisting in the uh, tyranny, the tyranny of Trump. So they must fight against him. So, yeah, I think the media and a lot of powerful figures do give encouragement to these people. They do tell these kids that, you know, this person who's a conservative or a libertarian isn't, you know, a conservative libertarian. They say they're a Nazi or white supremacist or fascist, and you should not listen to their points of view. And I think the greater society does give comfort to a lot of these incidents. Now, sometimes they do condemn their excesses, but they give them the initial impetus to do a lot of this violence and extremism and speech suppression. Well, God forfend a conservative should walk out onto campus at Berkeley and, and be identified as such. He, he risks being uh, beaten by someone wielding a love Trump's hate sign. Uh, I started uh, teaching college in the fall of 2013, and I had rarely stepped foot on a college campus since I graduated in the early 90s. And, and it was, I have to admit, quite a culture shock for me, and that's fine. Uh, but I didn't curl up in the fetal position under the dean's desk and demand coloring books and hot cocoa. Uh, I wasn't asked back, however, uh, after I believe it was the, the winter semester of 2015, and the administration said that it was because of declining enrollment, but I suspect it had a lot to do with my refusal to teach a class in popular culture that gender was a social construct. I said, well... You know, that's fine if, if they want, if the students want to read about that and, and utilize their critical thinking skills and arrive at that on their own. But I'm not going to proclaim from the lectern that this is the case. Uh, and again, not being asked back. I'm wondering, and as a conservative, uh, and I had to, I kept my head down and I didn't, I didn't announce that, but, um, it's pretty tough 
being a conservative uh, and being on the faculty in a, a college campus these days, do conservative college professors in the United States speak out or do they, they, they recognize that they must keep quiet in order to keep their job? I think most of them stay quiet, and especially in the kind of radical atmosphere that happens now because uh, students will target you. They will target you for harassment. They will, you know, protest your classrooms. They will, uh, you know, they'll fill your rate your professor page with all these negative reviews that you're a Nazi and a racist just for your political viewpoints. And the rest of the, and the, re- the rest of, you know, your fellow professors are going to hate you and not want, you, not want to teach with you and will not approve you for tenure. So pretty much all conservative professors have to keep their head down unless they have, you know, very well-established tenure and they know that, you know, their job's not going to be affected. And they're like, well, whatever, these kids get upset. So it takes a lot of courage and a lot of willpower to actually speak out on campus because they know the consequences. And a lot of uh, left-wing student agitators know they want to harass and intimidate them. They know that intimidation works. And they know if they harass them enough that most people will just want to, you know, go along to get along because nobody wants, you know, their emails or phone calls filled out with death threats. So they will go along and keep quiet just to maintain peace of mind. So I think most people keep it silent. And that's what allows the large, violent, you know, well, it's more like a minority, the violent minority to dominate discourse on campus and to make it. Uh, left-wing orthodoxy so stuck in place because if you challenge it, you become the enemy. You become everyone's hated villain, and there's serious consequences for that. There was a there was a professor at New York University who had a Twitter account where he's criticizing political correctness, and the school actually put him on discipline uh, probation for just for running a Twitter account that was expressing you know very pretty mild points of view. He was eventually reinstated just because of. Uh, backlash from conservative media, but it just goes to show you that if you speak out, even under a pseudonym, you know, there's severe consequences for it. It's starting to sound like the early stages of the Cultural Revolution in China. I mean, are there, are there, are there little commissars running around campuses taking names and reporting, reporting, uh, uh, politically incorrect, uh, people to, to their superiors? Are there, are there, are there kangaroo courts? Uh, are there spies? There are actually a few examples of campuses where it's not necessarily they're reporting them to any authority, but there are a few campuses where there's websites or Facebook pages where they list every student who they think is a conservative. And, of course, they don't list them. Here's all the conservatives. They're like, these people are racist. And they list their names, their addresses, their all their personal information, and they put them down. So there's been a few schools. There was a private school in, the, in New England. The name is... is me at the moment, where they actually, the school did take disciplinary action against the students who are running this page that was, um, you know, doxing, that was uh, posting all this personal information about these students for the sole purpose of political intimidation. And they were like complaining, they're like, well, we're doing a good deed, we're, we're exposing racists. But most of these kids, of course, were not racist, they were just conservatives or libertarians or people who are not a part of the, uh, you know, the politically correct dogma of campus. They were just people outsiders, and these students were trying to shame and intimidate them um, by calling them racist and listing all their personal information on the Internet. So there's a few cases of this happening, and I think there's going to be more of this happening because there's a lot of these leftists, uh, they call themselves anti-fascists, 
you know, they're not really protesting real fascists. They just protest people who disagree with them, um, who've been doing this for a long time where they expose the personal information and all the data of individuals that they oppose for the purpose of intimidation and threatening them to keep silent. And I think we're going to see this more on uh, college campuses where they run these websites that are publicizing all the information of people they perceive as uh, dissidents. Yeah, uh, mayhaps it's time to call the folks at Webster's and uh, a redefinition of the word fascist. A fascist is simply someone who's winning an argument with a liberal. You mention in the book a law professor, Glenn Reynolds, and we're running up against a break here. We'll, we'll uh, talk about uh, his rather novel idea when we come back. Law professor Glenn Reynolds writing a column, and as I say, a very novel idea. You'll want to hear what that is when we come back. Scott Greer, editor, columnist, The Daily Caller, No Campus for White Men. My name is Richard Serrett, and you are listening to The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, uh, welcome back, and uh, we'll uh, get back to our conversation with Scott Greer, author of No Campus for White Men, in uh, just a moment. Just a reminder, coming up next week on the program, John Rappaport and uh, his website, of course, No More Fake News. Now, No More Fake News has been around since the early 2000s. What a great name, given the uh, the current climate. No more fake news. John Rappaport and uh, our dear friend Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator. That's, uh, that's next week. Coming up in the next hour, another good friend of the program, Victor Vigiani, the hardest working man in ufology in Canada, and uh, also the executive director of Zealand News Network. He'll be uh, live in studio, and Preston Dennett uh, will be joining us as well on the uh, YouTube live stream, and uh, he, the author of Inside UFOs. Uh, some remarkable uh, cases, 10 brand new cases you've never heard before involving extraterrestrial contact. All right. Um, oh, let's uh, do our reveal here. Again, what's in the box? Using the hashtag TCS remote. And uh, let's see, we have, I mentioned Aaron G, a book of matches. Ross is a something metal, a harmonica. Let's see, what else do we have here? Uh, Mike R., a safety pin or a baby soother? The baby soother would be for the college campuses. <laughs> uh, and let's go around the horn here very quickly, and let's start with, uh, let's see, Ryan, what's in the box? I see a little porcelain horse. A porcelain horsey. All right, and uh, Albert? It's a guess. I'm going to guess a hockey card. A hockey card. All right, and uh, Ian in the other room? Uh, something green. Something green? Yeah, I see, I see like a, like a plant, but it doesn't make sense. <laughs> it, well, it could make sense. All right. Uh, now we haven't checked in with Victor yet. Victor's hanging out for the next hour. Did you want to utilize your remote viewing skills very quickly? Actually, yeah. I, I think it's, I think it's a piece of gum. Like a piece I, I, of I, gum? Like a, either bubble gum or or sort of like a stick of gum or something like that. All right. Well, unfortunately, no one came close. We are, of course, uh, nicely into spring training and uh, being a big baseball fan. There we have it. It's a baseball. What kind? What kind? Is it Rawlings? Uh, I don't know. There's no name on Oh, wait a minute. It's Winner's Choice. Winner's Choice. I don't know. Okay. There you go. Oh, my goodness. I, right. I, I said bubble gum with a ball. No, that wasn't close. No, not even. Don't even try. Okay, thank you very much for playing at home. All right, let's get back to our conversation uh, with Scott Greer. And um, we were mentioning this uh, law professor, Glenn, Glenn Reynolds, uh, who had a rather novel idea he published in his column 
on uh, what to do with these uh, campus college students. And uh, do you want to elaborate a little bit on that, uh, Scott? Yeah, Glenn Reynolds, uh, he's a very uh, strong uh, conservative professor. He's got a lot of great views. Uh, A lot of what he says would probably be in agreement with the story. But uh, right after, on this one column, this happened right after uh, the Yale University protests and the University of Missouri protests in November 2015. And he saw all these kids going crazy. And he's like, you know what, maybe we should raise the voting age to 25 because college kids now are not... uh, by these actions that all these protests happening, they're showing a level of immaturity that shows that they're not responsible enough to be voting yet. Uh, which, you know, is a kind of interesting idea, but when I first saw that, I was like, well, this is kind of uh, painting all of these kids, everyone who's, you know, 18 to 24, as being similar to these protesters, which isn't necessarily correct, I think. But it is, it does show kind of the disturbing nature of these protesters. I don't want these protesters... Uh, I don't think necessarily these protesters understand the American political process enough to make informed decisions when they vote clearly by their actions. But I think for the rest of the majority of the students, I don't necessarily see that it's as necessarily a generational problem. Um, I just see it as a vocal and powerful minority who's taking over college campuses, and the rest of the majority doesn't want to challenge it because they're, they have the sympathy of the administrators and professors and kind of the sympathy of the media. Yeah, I think the word you're looking for is intimidation. They've been intimidated. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, they, they intimidate the rest of the campus. So the majority stay silent while these, um, the, while these, uh, the, the loud and very noticeable minority, they're not the silent majority, uh, gains the headlines with their ridiculous protests. I hope so. I, I was heartened to, to read uh, that was your your sort of your takeaway that that, that we are not talking about most uh, students, and I don't want to think that way. Um, but when you when you think about this group and many of them, not well, you say it's a minority, but they are willfully closing their ears to alternative viewpoints. Uh, then, uh, well, you could say that about many low-information low voters. Uh, there are lots of um, people well into adulthood that vote conserv- or vote Republican or they vote liberal up here in Canada because their father and their grandfather did. So there's not much difference on that score. So, yeah, Glenn Reynolds, it's, it's provocative. It's probably uh, un- unworkable. But what was the reaction? Was there any backlash to that column? No, I think most people thought, and I think the 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 gist and spirit of it was in the right direction because it was it was a reaction to the craziness, and it was a suggestion that maybe this is a generational thing. So I think uh, I think it was just a little too you know broad. I don't think there was much backlash against it. I think a lot of people were like that's an interesting idea. Uh, Glenn Reynolds is uh, you know he makes a lot of provocative suggestions, and that's what makes him a very good columnist. And it definitely got people talking. I don't think there was much backlash to it. And I think it, it, it just shows the kind of out, proper outrage towards campuses being taken over by these protesters. Uh, we were talking earlier about identity politics on college campuses and how it has metastasized in some instances uh, into outright hatred towards whites and you write in the book about how this came to a, a, a head, a very ugly situation at Dartmouth back in 2015. Tell us what happened. Yeah, Dartmouth University, there was a Black Lives Matter protest that happened at this campus, and several students, uh, 
all of them African-American or mostly African-American, stormed through this Dartmouth library and began screaming, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, you know, disrupting uh, several students studying for, I believe it was even during finals week. You know, they were trying to study for, very hard for the finals so they could get good grades. And they're disrupting um, them being able to study and demanding that everyone shout Black Lives Matter. Well, few who would not say it, they began attacking, you know, assaulting, screaming and cussing out at people for not even showing necessarily resistance, but for not joining in their protest. It was almost them humiliating anyone they deemed as an enemy. And usually they just picked out somebody just because they they were white. Or yeah, even if they weren't saying it enthusiastically you know, enough. You white person, you know. Right. What? Or even if they weren't saying it enthusiastically enough. Yeah, it was all about, it was all of a show of force and a show of intimidation. And they went screaming, you know, attacking people through this library. And afterwards, the worst part is the Dartmouth University officials apologized to the protesters afterwards for what happened for apparently for racial insensitivity. They didn't apologize to the people of being attacked and to being cussed at. They apologized to the protesters initially. Eventually, the, the school, there was so much backlash against that ridiculous act that the school eventually apologized also to the students who had their studies interrupted and were belittled and you know attacked by raging protesters. So it also just goes to show how the, you know, the, the school establishment itself often comes down on the side of the protesters, even when there's a clear outrage involved. All right, we will uh, step away here, and uh, when we come back, I want to talk about what is going to happen uh, with these students once they get out into the real world and become editors or general managers at radio stations or city councilors. Uh, we'll uh, discuss that and much more with Scott Greer, the author of No Campus for White Men, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Loose lips sink ships. And sometimes, corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Scott Greer stays with us for a short while yet, author of No Campus for White Men. He is uh, editor and columnist at uh, The Daily Caller. Tell me about the push to eliminate the use of gender-specific pronouns. A lot of these schools are issuing guidelines for students now that they must not call somebody that they see as a man or a woman as he or she. They have to ask them what's their preferred pronoun and if they, uh, it might be better just to use gender neutral now, like Zier and Zer. They, it sounds like stuff out of, of a sci-fi novel, what they suggest, but this is actually serious guidelines that several schools throughout the country are issuing to their students and recommending that they don't go up to somebody and immediately, you know, assume that they're a he or she, even though they're clearly look like one, because that would be, of course, a microaggression. So they must actually go up to them and ask, what are your preferred pronouns, and then go with that. And before that, use these kind of gender-neutral gobbledygook that <laughs> sounds like something out of Star Trek to refer to them before they identify themselves as a uh, as a he or she or whatever they want to identify as. Right, and we should point out that sensitivity is important, but these things can be handled on a case-by-case situation. A student can go up to mm-hmm. a, a professor or it can be discussed in, you know, some, in some way. But to lay these blanket rules down, it almost sounds like something from a Monty Python sketch. 
And there was a professor up here in Toronto who actually stood up and said, I'm sorry, I'm not playing this game. And he was just routed in the press. If it wasn't so, I don't know, sad, you'd have to laugh. But it's, it's, it's tragic and it's, it's serious. It has serious implications. Yeah, it's very maddening because it kind of halts everything to go about it this way to, you know, to demand. And, and we have to say this, that, you know, transgender people in the United States only make up about 0.2, of the population. And we're going to upend how we communicate with each other. You know, the basic part of, you know, communicate a large part of communication is assuming, you know, a gender, uh, what gender that person is because he, she, you know, this is very important conversation. So we're upending how we communicate with each other just to conform to a very, very small minority of people that might not actually be, you know, legitimately, you know, this might not be legitimately that they actually feel that they're a woman, that this might be a sign of mental illness. So we're doing all these things just to appease this very small minority that might actually be suffering from mental illness. So it's, it is very disturbingly for our society that we would upend how we talk with one another just to appease this small fragment of society. You refer to these this vocal minority of students, and again, they are uh, obviously um, simpatico with an, you know a large number of the faculty as well. They're playing along, um, but you call them the the coalition of the aggrieved, which I think is a terrific name. But you say that they are not the product of uh, helicopter parents or being or, or overtly coddled backgrounds, then what is the cause? What, where do these, um, uh, co- where does this coalition of the aggrieved come from? I think it's a society thing of an abrasive kind of racial identity politics and also the uh, pedestaling of victimhood, victimization in our society. These are kind of social trends, kind of more intellectual trends, rather than necessarily helicopter parenting. We've had coddled children for, you know, ever and ever. And a lot of these kids not necessarily come from wealthy backgrounds and or where it's helicopter parenting. And I think it's almost in some ways when we refer to that, the necessarily of coddled parents is that it's kind of a uh, white suburban anxiety that some of these kids were raising up. They're not tough enough as the last generation. Well, in some cases that's true, but that's not necessarily what's inspiring the campus protests. In society in general, we've kind of built this uh, notion that you should agitate for your own racial group, that it, if you're a minority, not not necessarily if you're white. That's, now, that's very bad, and that's not accepted on a college campus. But if you're in a protected class or a minority or some other group that you feel that has been oppressed by the dominant majority, you are right to advocate for your sole group interest, to see yourself as being your whole political ideology, your whole way of looking at the world comes from your racial or sexual identity, it is good for you to do that, and it's good to advocate for pol- for political change on that basis. And at the same time, we have this idea in our society where victims, you know, for ages and ages and ages, nobody wanted to be a victim. Nobody wanted that stigma. Being a victim made you seem weak and lesser in your community, but now it makes you seem like the hero. Being a victim is what everybody wants to, wants to be, and we have this competition to see who can be the better victim, who's been the most oppressed. And that's really what drives it, because all these, when all these kids are agitating for their own cause on campus, they always say, well, I'm oppressed, and these words are going to hurt me. And as a, as a victim, as an oppressed person, we can't let me be at risk of this, because we're the most at risk to be at harm by our oppressed status. 
And this comes from a point of weakness, but it's actually a point of strength because they get more moral status. They have more value. They are considered better people than the privileged, the the oppressors, who, who usually, for most regards, are the straight white Christian men because they're the ones doing all the oppressing, so to speak, even though they're not really doing any oppressing. Um, but And so this new uh, kind of moral culture that they've built centering around victimhood, it puts, elevates people based on having a minority identity. So it's more of these trends, that, these social trends that are happening in society that students are picking up on and realizing they can gain power and influence by embracing them and using them to agitate for their own political cause. I, I wonder what they would do with someone who is seemingly white, uh, but was in fact of Greek ancestry, and uh, their ancestors uh, endured 400 years of slavery under the Ottoman Empire. Do they not have victim status because they're white? No, they don't have victim status. They're oppressors. Actually, the, even it, under the system, whites... No, I, I explain this very in-depth in a whole chapter in No Camps for White Men about white guilt. No matter where your background or beliefs, you are responsible for everything bad white people done. Slavery, the excesses of imperialism, segregation, anything bad that whites have done in the past, you are responsible for. So that Greek person, you know, if you came here, if your ancestors came here in 1900, you're somehow responsible for antebellum slavery, even though your family wasn't even here. And you're suffering under the yoke of the, you know, the Ottoman Empire, like you said. They don't care. They see you as an evil white man who is just as equal to, uh, you know, Jefferson Davis, uh, just because of the color of your skin. So all white people are responsible for all these bad things in history, no matter their background or beliefs. And they have to feel bad for this. And this is drilled into their minds at college campus. Uh, here, here's what I worry about, and, and as you point out, this trend is already underway because this uh, this trend started a while ago, and certain, you know cohorts have already graduated, and some of this the, this coalition of the uh, aggrieved have already found themselves into positions of power. Uh, but uh, more and more graduating, they will become uh, editors at newspapers, if newspapers still exist. Uh, they will be uh, city councilors. They will be general managers at radio stations. Uh, and so this is, I'm, I'm going to use the term metastasizing. Uh, and when these individuals, assuming they don't, you know, grow up, <laughs> if I, I'll use that, that, that term, they won't grow up. They'll continue in this mindset. Uh, if they continue to take places of power, and let's face it, they hate Western values, they hate freedom of speech, they hate capitalism, do, do they not represent some sort of existential threat to Western civilization as we know it? Yes, because uh, the worst part about this is not that they're taking over campuses, it's that they'll take over the rest of institutions of society. And they did this before. A lot of the radicals of the 60s later became leaders in their own regard. I mean, Eric Holder, uh, Obama's longest serving U.S. Attorney General, was a protest leader when he was, when he was in college. And then, you know, we wonder why he was so, uh, radical when he was Attorney General, because it was for, owing from his days as a, as a college protester. So the worst part about these kids is that they want to remake the rest of America, the rest of North America, into the environment that they experienced during their four years in college. And that's what's most disturbing about this is that it's going to infect the rest of society and it's going to take us down a very dark path. So the mo- it, it, the seeing this is just a, is 
as an issue limited to higher education and our universities doesn't see the bigger problem and how this can affect the rest of society because what kids learn in their, you know, 18 to 22 years will inspire them and influence them for the rest of their lives. And if this is what they're learning, you know, this kind of anti-white hatred, this, this celebration of victimhood, that's what they're going to take into the workplace and even worse into the halls of power. Uh, it, dare I say, mention that it, it's almost the, the, the early stages of civil war. Yeah, there's a lot of polarization now. There is such so much division now. I mean, it's in America. I don't know if necessarily it will lead to the levels of civil war, but I mean, just under Trump, I mean, the amount of division we've had. I've never seen this in my lifetime, and I've you know I've talked with people who are much older than me, and they've never seen it. Even back in the '60s, we uh, and there's no chance. I don't see even a chance of it coming together. Uh, and in, when we look at our college campuses and the ideas that are impacting them. The fact that no matter, you know, you can be a white liberal, but yet you're still a white supremacist, that kind of idea is very troubling, especially with the demographics changing in this country. If this is how a lot of these people are going to view America and certain people who, you know, their fellow Americans, this is a very bad sign for the country. Um, the, the colleges and universities, is there not some obligation for them, the administration, to protect First Amendment rights, and is that not tied to funding? For example, could the new Secretary of Education, uh, could could she not, uh, Betsy DeVos, could she not pull funding from, let's say, Berkeley if they're not going to protect the First Amendment? Yeah, states and federal funding, all universities in America, pretty much, there's only a few, like a very tiny number of exceptions depend on funding, even if they're private schools, because all private schools depend on student loans, which are federally funded. And thus, we could you could threaten them with the funding. And I think it was, you know, right after a riot occurred at UC Berkeley last month, President Trump threatened to defund them if they were going to protect First Amendment. And I think the most effective strategy for right now, if, you know, concerned parents and students, is to pressure their lawmakers to go after these school administrators to threaten them with defunding if they're not going to protect the First Amendment, if they're going to allow conservative students to continue to be threatened and intimidated while on a cautious campus just for having their, uh, you know, a different point of view. And that's arguably right now in the short term, the most effective tactic is to threaten, is to use, is to hope our elected officials use the powers that they have, the power of the first string to go after these administrators and to force them to grow a background to stand up to campus agitators. Indeed. Uh, well, thank you for shining a light on this most disturbing trend, Scott Greer. I appreciate it. Thank you. No campus for white men. My website, strangeplanet.ca. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. S-Y because I love you, R-E-T-T. And as always, follow the truth. Thank mm-hmm. you.